BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. As the CDC holds a meeting this morning to discuss Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine, counties across California are halting the use of it. This comes after reports of six cases of women in the U.S. who developed rare and severe blood clots shortly after being vaccinated. KQED health reporter Leslie McClurg has more. It's normal for officials to pause the rollout of a medicine to investigate a rare side effect. It's not clear whether the J&J vaccine caused the blood clots. That's why experts need time to review each patient's medical history. You know, was there something about these women that made them get clots more often than the general population? Uh, Did they have malignancies or cancer? Did they have a family history of clots? That's Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He's an infectious disease expert at UCSF. He says even if it turns out that J&J is the culprit, the chances it will happen again are low. About 6.8 million people in the U.S. have received the J&J vaccine. Only six women received a severe blood clot. That's one in a million chance. Dr. Philip Grant is an infectious disease expert at Stanford. It's a very, very low risk. It's not impossible but you're much more likely to have a car accident driving to the supermarket. Grant says a person is much more likely to die of COVID in the U.S. Those odds are one in a thousand. Plus, if you do contract the virus, blood clots are a complication. Dr. Catherine Blish is an immunologist at Stanford. So getting COVID is a tenfold higher risk of developing this weird kind of blood clot than getting the vaccine. All three experts stress that the virus is much more dangerous than the potential side effects from the vaccine. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. Legislation that would have banned hydraulic fracking and several other oil extraction methods in California has failed in the state legislature. The bill, which would have also prohibited oil wells near homes, schools, and healthcare facilities, died in a committee yesterday. The state's petroleum industry and some labor unions opposed the bill, arguing it would lead to job losses and higher gas prices at the pump. Environmental groups pushed for the ban, saying oil drilling is a threat to the environment and people's health. And turning to a California mystery, a longtime person of interest has been arrested in the disappearance of Kristen Smart, nearly 25 years after she went missing while walking back to her dorm at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Paul Flores was taken into custody yesterday morning in San Pedro on suspicion of murder. His father has also been booked on suspicion of being an accessory to the crime. San Luis Obispo County Sheriff Ian Parkinson, speaking at a news conference yesterday, says they've never had enough evidence evidence to charge Flores until recently. In March of this year, detectives served another search warrant in Arroyo Grande uh, at the home of Ruben Flores, the father of Paul Flores. Additional evidence related to the Smart Investigation was discovered at that time. 
Smart was last seen on May 25, 1996, while returning to her dorm from an off-campus party. Flores, who was also a student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, walked her home. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. A new investigation from the newspaper The Guardian says leaders in many developing countries are using Facebook for political manipulation of their electorates and that Facebook's leaders are ignoring what's happening. To find out more, I spoke to Guardian reporter Julia Wong, who started out by telling me how the investigation began. This story came about because a former Facebook employee, Sophie Zhang, came to The Guardian and and decided to speak out. She was a data scientist on the fake engagement team. So in the course of her work, she began noticing more and more and detecting more and more of these networks of fake accounts and fake pages that were being used to influence and manipulate politics. Um, And, you know, she was particularly concerned about those cases where It wasn't just, you know, maybe some political consultants working on behalf of a politician, but where she was finding actual evidence of high-level elected officials who were personally involved in this kind of manipulation. So do the honchos at Facebook know about this, number one? And number two, if they do, what are they doing about it? So Sophie Zhang, she remained at the company for about two and a half years. And during that time, she was pretty relentless herself in trying to get Facebook to do something about this. And again and again and again, the message that she got was that, yeah, this stuff was bad, but it simply wasn't a priority that Facebook had other priorities that it needed to focus on. Those priorities were primarily countries that were more important to Facebook, like the U.S., Western Europe, parts of East Asia. You know, wealthy and large countries were always at the top of the priority, And the countries that Sophie was detecting this kind of behavior in often were simply not priorities. You know, Honduras only has four and a half million uh, Facebook users. Azerbaijan has similar, maybe three and a half, four million Facebook users. So to Facebook, that's tiny, even if, you know, to the population in Azerbaijan, Facebook is crucially important because it is one of the only uncensored parts of the internet that can be accessed. You know, there's been uh, other reporting for a long time about how Facebook can really be a malign influence in a lot of, in the politics of a lot of different countries, helping to inflame ethnic tensions, for instance, jacking up nationalism. Does this fall in line with that? Is this another face of those other things that Facebook has been to some infamous for for a long time? Yes, it's certainly part of the broader kind of problem with Facebook, which is that this is a company, it's only 16 years old, and it has 
you know, rapidly and aggressively colonized cyberspace for almost the entire world. In many countries like Myanmar, there is no internet outside of Facebook for the vast majority of people. But again, you know, it, it, these countries, you know, apparently are too small for Facebook to bother to adequately staff them to have language support, but not too small that they, you know, that Facebook hasn't gone in and, and completely, you know, monopolized the digital space there. So it's, I mean, I think of it a little bit like it's, it's almost like they're a, a global slumlord. They do put resources into wealthy, large countries that they think of as important markets for them. But, you know, if you're a small country with a not particularly popular language, you might end up just being kind of kind of out of luck. And and Facebook is not really stepping up to the responsibility for for what they've done. Hmm. Such important reporting. Julia Wong of The Guardian, thank you so much for your time and and for your pieces about this. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. The San Francisco-based online newsletter platform, Substack, has established itself as a home for name-brand journalists who've abandoned mainstream media outlets. Why? Well, in some cases, Substack is offering writers lots of money and editorial freedom. But now Substack's choice of some of the writers it's invited aboard has come under fire. Rachel Myro, KQED senior editor for Silicon Valley Desk, has more. Matt Taibbi. Glenn Greenwald, Matthew Iglesias. If you know their work and you're a fan, you might be subscribing to their newsletters on Substack, now that they're no longer operating out of traditional newsrooms like The Guardian, Vox, and The Atlantic. Substack is venture capital financed, $65 million most recently from Andreessen Horowitz, a name-brand Silicon Valley VC. Flush with cash, Substack has approached some big-name writers with big money, a quarter of a million dollars in some cases, to seed Substack with people who will draw a crowd. Substack Pro Deals, the company calls them on its blog. Creating a stable of writers, many of whom were already controversial, right? Because controversy is what drives attention in a social media context. Sarah T. Roberts co-directs UCLA's Center for Critical Inquiry. Now, new media outlets scooping up headline-grabbing talent is nothing new. Publishers have done it for centuries, Hollywood movie studios, and now social media platforms too. But Roberts says Substack hasn't been transparent about what it's doing. It's vetting and choosing certain people to give them a platform that it supports financially. And that is an editorial decision, which makes them something other than a neutral platform with no politics. Substack declined to comment for this story, but company leaders are posting at length online to counter attacks from critics who are starting to pay close attention to the subset of Substack writers who get the juicy deals. The whiteness, the maleness, the libertarian right-wingness of the group you know, is pretty self-evident. Some non-pro Substack writers are so offended they're leaving the platform and encouraging their readers to do the same. For instance, one writer who identifies as trans last month called out the platform for giving massive advances to writers whose work includes, quote, extreme trans-eliminationist rhetoric. Company leaders replied in another blog post. Here's a bit read by a colleague of mine since, again, Substack wouldn't comment. More than 30 writers have now signed pro deals, and they cover a range of issues, none that can be reasonably construed as anti-trans, and a range of backgrounds. 
More than half are women, and more than a third are people of color. Not that the company is sharing its Substack Pro roles publicly. Also unclear how many disaffected Substack writers and their readers are leaving the platform. Substack's biggest problem, though, may be the fact it's proved it's possible to make VC money off of newsletters. Now Facebook and Twitter are getting into the game, and they have a lot more eyeballs and money to offer writers. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro in Menlo Park. And that is the California Report for today, Wednesday, April 13th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening and talk tomorrow. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. The law firm Perkins Coie, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCOIE.com. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.